If you're a younger son, if you're an older son, you need to know that what's on offer is acceptance with God based on forgiveness, whoever you are, whatever you've done. Uh, it's our custom just to uh, stay on our feet and to pray before we look at the Bible. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Father God, not all of us can yet say that we trust in you. But as we look at the Bible, please make yourself known to us so we can. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please do take a seat. And um, if you are here through an invitation, especially for the first time, can I say thank you very much for coming. The story is told of a little boy who was in church for the first time, and um, most of it was so foreign to him that he had to ask his dad to explain things as he went along. And he noticed after a while a, a list of names on the wall, and he whispered to his dad, well, what are those names there? And dad said, well, that's the people who died in the services, and wide-eyed. Little boy said, well, was that the morning services or the, um, <laughs> the evening services? Um, sadly, some people's experience of church has been uh, pretty deadly. My initial experience of church certainly was. So it was great to be able to throw that street party uh, a month ago, see so many hundreds of new faces who don't usually come uh, along there and enjoying it. But take away the bouncy castles, and the um, jumps to the dog and the RAF fly past, which you can't do every Sunday. And to many of my contemporaries, at least, church can seem pretty unattractive. In fact, a book came out just recently entitled Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity. And the authors uh, interviewed thousands of people and they asked people who are not Christians to say what they thought of people who are. And the answer was unchristian. In fact, the two big criticisms that they leveled against Christians were that on the one hand they're judgmental, but that ironically on the other hand they're hypocritical. So for example, a friend of mine grew up in a church-going church home, um, but would not now call herself a Christian and I asked her a few years ago why that was and she said well if you've grown up watching a vicar judging people for sexual immorality and divorce and so on and then running off with someone else's wife it's pretty unattractive so I want to say if the church has made Christianity unattractive to you first of all I apologize that we Christians have not done better. But then I want to invite you, if you will, to look past the church to the person of Jesus, because he and what he offers is what Christianity is all about. So I wonder if you'd turn back in the service sheet to page five, um, or it is, it's on page 1048 of the Bibles, if you prefer it in the Bibles, but page five of the service sheet or page 1048 of the Bibles, to that reading that we had from Luke's Gospel. And what it shows straight away 
I'm sad to say, is that the church of Jesus' day could be equally unattractive. Just look at the beginning of that reading. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, that's Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So the tax collectors and sinners are the irreligious people who would never darken the doors of a church except possibly for their own funeral. Whereas the Pharisees and teachers of the law are the religious. They are the church of the day and they are horrified that Jesus is welcoming these people when in their opinion he should be judging them and having nothing to do with them. But Jesus doesn't do that. And actually, it's the people who know they have got things badly wrong who are most attracted to Jesus when you read the Gospels. Let me just pull into a, a lay-by and quickly say what Christians believe about Jesus. We don't believe that he was just a good man or a moral teacher, but that he was God's son, stepped into this world as one of us, to make God known beyond reasonable doubt. That's what he claimed to be, and um, his life, his miracles, and above all, his resurrection from the dead are what back up that claim. Now, I know for quite a few here, what I've just said will have begged many, many questions. For example, how do you even know Jesus existed, let alone know that um, what this book says about him is trustworthy and true? Um, I'll suggest a few things at the end if, if the is it true question is still your big question. But tonight I want to look at this bit of Luke's gospel which really answers the what does Jesus offer question. Because in a sense you're, you're unlikely to pursue the is it true one unless you think well there might be something in it worth having. And what he offers is this, acceptance with God based on forgiveness, whoever you are, whatever you've done. That's what he offers, acceptance with God based on forgiveness, whoever you are, whatever you've done. The Church of Jesus Day was giving the exact opposite message that God accepts those who are good enough. And so Jesus told this parable or story to set the record straight. It's about a father and two sons. The father stands for God. The two sons stand for two kinds of people, both of whom have got the wrong picture of God in their heads, both of whom need to get the right one to start relating to God properly again. And Jesus' parables, they're all like mirrors. So as you read them, you're looking into a mirror, and Jesus is saying, where do you see yourself in this? So have a look down again at that reading from Luke and the next paragraph, um, or verse 11. Little number 11, verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So the younger son is saying to himself, um, I want to enjoy life, and it's just not possible to do that with my father around making demands on me. So he asks for his inheritance. A few years back, my brother and I were visiting mum and dad, and, and dad took Neil and I into his study and showed us where all his finance files are so that um, when the time comes, it's not difficult to sort things out when he's gone. Never a comfortable conversation to have. I respected him for having it. But Neil and I would have made it far more uncomfortable if we'd said, look, couldn't we just treat you as dead already? 
and have the money so that we can enjoy all your stuff without you getting in the way. And that's what this younger son is doing here. And he stands for the person who pictures God as the great killjoy. He stands for the person who says, I want to enjoy life, don't we all? And therefore, I do not want God telling me how to live it. I want to run it my own way. And what Jesus is doing in this bit of the story, he's holding up the mirror to those tax collectors and sinners that we met at the beginning and saying to them, look, do you see yourself? And saying to you, do you see yourself? Well, read on verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now, in my experience, when people live without reference to God, they do not always end up in a mess like that. Some do, and God uses experiences like that to prod them to think again about him. But I have talked to plenty of people who have said to me, um, look, I have no faith, but life is going very well, and I just don't see the need for God. The irony about that person is that it is precisely because God is being so good to them that life is going so well that they can end up feeling in no need of God. As C.S. Lewis put it, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts to us in our pain. It is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In other words, it is the bad times, like this one for this younger son, that prod us to think about God, whereas actually the good times just make us feel, hey, I can get on without him, just make us more confident of that. So on to verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I'll set out, go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. So his first mistake is to think that dad is the great killjoy. His second mistake is to think it's just not possible that he would accept me back as before. But read on, verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, ran out to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. So Jesus says his father saw him. And you think, how come? Presumably because he had sat on the veranda every day watching and hoping that that familiar figure would come shambling up the drive again. Every day it was his younger son's handwriting he looked for in the post. Every day it was his younger son's voice that he hoped for on the answer machine. Because he had never stopped loving him and wanting him back. And Jesus says, that's the real picture of the God who made you. And then Jesus says his father ran out to his son and in those days senior men never ran it was considered totally beneath them totally humiliating the, the best equivalent i could think of 
um, would be the queen running in public. You just cannot imagine the queen legging it along the platform because the royal train has pulled out too soon, <laughs> can you? Saying, wait for one, wait for one. <laughs> but um, this father, in front of all the neighbors who know just how badly this son has treated him, swallows his pride entirely, utterly humbling, the most costly thing he'd ever done. And the longer you go on in life, the more you learn that forgiveness costs, doesn't it? And it cost God. And if you read to the end of Luke's Gospel, you find it cost God's Son his life on a cross to step in where we should have been and take the judgment for all our sin, all our pushing aside of God in our lives. And this part of the parable is... Uh, where the father runs out, this is where Jesus, as it were, paints himself into the story. Where God, as it were, ran out from heaven all the way down to where we are, all the way down to the cross, to do that, to get us back. So the younger son comes thinking it's, it's impossible that his father would ever accept him back as before, ever treat him as if he'd never done what he'd done. And yet that is exactly what happens through one almighty act of forgiveness. And Jesus says that is the real picture of the God who made you. So read on uh, verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father just rolls over him. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. So if you see yourself in the younger son, Jesus is saying there are two things wrong with your picture of his father. One is thinking that he's the great killjoy. But you don't get that impression from the party lavished here on the younger son, do you? You get the impression that God the Father actually wants this returned son to enjoy himself. And that is what God is like. Far from him being a threat to the enjoyment of our life, putting him, the maker of life, the expert at life, back at the center of your life is the key to enjoying it. That's certainly my experience. You can ask any Christians you know. But if you're the younger son type, the other thing probably wrong with your view of God is thinking, well, where I am now, which perhaps has been for many years, he'd never be able to accept me back. You know, that's just a lost opportunity. And it's not. Because Jesus died on the cross to accept anyone back, whoever you are, whatever you've done. That's why I said earlier, what he's offering is acceptance with God based on forgiveness, whoever you are, whatever you've done. Let's just take a glance at the older brother. Uh, it's been said that there are only two characters in this story who are not pleased to see the younger son back. One is the fattened calf, for obvious reasons. Um, the other is his older brother. So look down to verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother's come, he replied, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. <laughs> The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Another humiliation for this father. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. 
So there's hypocrisy, because that's not true, is it? Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, there's judgmental. You kill the fattened calf for him. What gives the game away about the older son's thinking is that little phrase, all these years I've been slaving for you. And he resents his dad every bit as much as the younger son, he just never had the guts to walk out. He's the religious one. He's the goody-goody. But in his heart, he left home just as much as the younger son. And he stands for the religious person who pictures God as the great slave driver, the person who thinks that relationship with God is based on merit and you have got to work to be good enough for God. And what Jesus is doing here is holding up the mirror to those Pharisees and teachers of the law that we met at the beginning of the story and saying, do you see yourselves? And saying to us, do you see yourselves? Martin Luther, the famous Christian reformer, would certainly have seen himself in that mirror earlier in his life. Uh, One day as a young man, he was caught in a storm, not unlike the one we had two Thursdays ago. He was actually hit by lightning, knocked off his feet, but not killed. And in his superstition of his early life, he took it as a pretty clear signal from God that he wasn't trying hard enough. And he promised there and then on the spot to become a monk, which he did. And he entered a monastery And he spent years trying, so he thought, to merit God's acceptance. Uh, I read up on it during this week. In his monastery, there were seven official periods of prayer, the first at a leisurely 2 a.m. Luther, to be on the safe side, started earlier. He fasted, often for three days a week, to the point of physical collapse. And he refused blankets. This was a monastery in deep Germany. Can you imagine that in the winter? He refused blankets on the grounds that God would be more impressed. And much, much later, after he discovered that that's not what it's all about, but it's all about Jesus, he wrote this. I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk could get to heaven by his monkery, I was he. All my brothers at the monastery who knew me well bear me out. If I'd kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, readings, and other work. But then he adds, sometimes I was proud, and I would say, I've done nothing wrong today. But then I would ask myself, but have you done enough? And that is the question that haunts every religious person. That is, everyone who believes that God's acceptance can and must be merited. Have I done enough? And I don't know, maybe that is you. Maybe all this time you've been thinking Christianity is like the treadmill uh, at the gym where you are trying to be good enough for God. Maybe that is where you are right now. And it is such a guilt trip, isn't it, that in your heart of hearts, I bet you wish you could walk away from it. Maybe you did walk away from it at some stage in the past. And actually, you're you're back in church just wondering, did you get the right message in the first place? Or maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You're on the outside looking in. But this this is exactly how you see it to be. And 
It's just totally unattractive. And if you're any of those, Jesus is saying, you've got the wrong picture of my father. He's nothing like that. If you're a younger son, if you're an older son, you need to know that what's on offer is acceptance with God based on forgiveness, whoever you are, whatever you've done. You need to stop trying to earn God's love and start trusting that he forgives and accepts people on the strength of the death of Jesus. I'm done. I said at the start that I wanted to invite you, um, if you could, to look past your experience of the church to the person of Jesus, who is often very well hidden by the church. Sorry about that. Because if you have been invited by someone, it is not because they would like you to get interested in church, in a Sunday routine, in a Victorian barn. It's because they'd love you to get interested in Jesus. Because that is where they have found not a religion, but a relationship with God, the God who really is like the dad in this parable. If you'd like to know more about that offer of acceptance with God based on forgiveness, whoever you are, whatever you've done, can I encourage you to pick up a copy of this booklet from the Welcome Desk, Why Jesus? As I said earlier, I, I also said I'd suggest a few things if you're still asking the is it true question. One is, do help yourself to a copy of Mark's Gospel, also from the Welcome Desk, or these are at the, uh, the, the displays at the doors as well. Just say that because it surprises me how often I get into conversation with people and they say, you know, the trouble is I really don't think it's true. And then I discover that they've never actually given one of the Gospels a, a, a read just to check out for themselves whether it rings true. And then the other, another suggestion is you might like to pick up a copy of this booklet which I put together called Why Trust Them. When it first appeared, one woman in our church said tongue-in-cheek, I see you've written something about men. Um, and um, I said, no, it says the four Gospels, who wrote when and can we trust them? Um, so do pick up a copy of that. And my final suggestion is, is actually a, an invitation and it is um, to join our next Christianity Explored course. That's just a short course designed for people who are just saying, I'm prepared to give this all a first or second thought. If you want to know when the next one is kicking off, again, do head to the welcome desk or ask any of us on the staff. Before we sing one last thing, let me lead us in a prayer. Father God, for those of us still really not sure that you are even there, please help us to find and believe more of the evidence of yourself that you have given in Jesus. For those of us still unsure where we stand with you, please help us to trust your forgiveness and to find an assurance of your acceptance. And for those of us who have done that, please help us to be a church that attracts people to Jesus because they can see something of him in us. We ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.